0: Uh, I believe the Lord has continued to share with me some exciting things, and I'm just going to pass it on to you guys. You know, I grew up a lot of my life playing sports, uh, especially hockey and right through college and those type of things. And in the process of doing that, since you were a little guy, and I, I still remember winning my first trophy at the 10-year-old Olympics in Ontario, and we were from Winnipeg. I still have that trophy, by the way, and I keep it. You know why I keep it? Because once in my anger, I threw it at the wall and it broke. And the Lord said, You keep that as a reminder of what can happen when you get angry. And I still have it at home. The player's missing. I don't know where he disappeared to, but I got his legs and the thing there. But in the process, we learn a lot of other things. And one of the things that I learned in sports is this whole idea of sizing up the opposition. And you do it. It happens whether you even acknowledge it or not. There is sometimes even on a subconscious level, uh, or you may be with a group within the framework of a group of the guys on your team standing there looking at the other team and you are scoping them out. Uh, You're asking, well, I wonder how aggressive they are. Do they look intimidating? You know, in comparison to our team, how are we stacking up against them? In other words, we're basically asking how good. Does the other bench look compared to us? And most of us, we do this all the time with people. We don't even realize we do this all the time. You know, there was a series of experiments done in Princeton University years ago where psychologists revealed, this is amazing, it takes less than a tenth of a second where we form an impression of a stranger already. Less than a tenth of a second. We've already formed an impression. That's why they say, you know, greeting is so important when you come in and you're smiling, things like that. But a tenth of a second, that's how quickly we are prone to judge other people. And like it or not, judgments based on facial appearance, if you look at our society, they play an important role in how we treat others and how we get treated. Psychologists have known for a very long time, and I've read this countless times, and that attractive people get better outcomes in life, in practically all walks of life. People with mature faces, they say, receive more severe judici- judicial outcomes than people with baby faces. It's true. Having a face that looks competent is even more important than trustworthy and likable when it comes to being voted in into a political party. So sadly, subconsciously, we begin to judge people all the time or outwardly we acknowledge differences and when we do this, we begin to sometimes it happens, this is the premise of racism, but we begin to form a us versus them mentality. We create teams. We know society creates cliques. Look at any playground. Look at any office environment. (laughs) Look at some family gatherings. Cliques form. And I know where worst case scenario, where us-them mentality kicks in, it's called busy traffic. Everyone becomes the opposition then. But it's in the context of judging others that something else develops. When we grow from infancy all the way to adulthood. In this process, as we gather all these things, and my granddaughter Maisley is just beginning to formulate, we begin creating expectations. Sometimes there's a high attraction to certain people and certain traits, especially, sadly, physical attributes that appear and suddenly register in our mind as, wow, to look like that is very important even vital sometimes for success we already seen looking good seems to prevail in our culture so from physical appearances like height and weight and they'll even tell you tone of voice allure from mainly women the tone of a man's voice height even the amount of hair on someone's head we begin to look at this but then we also sorry oh, Darren, I dare <laughs> I wasn't saying it was negative that you had a lot of hair. It might be the opposite, you know. But we begin to make all of these things. And then we add in things like, well, intellectual prowess. How intelligent are they? Or how popular? Or how financially successful are they? And so we use all of these things and we begin to create status and significance. And we know this is nothing new. This isn't new to us. Let's go back to the Bible. 1 Samuel 9 2. What does it say? Kish had a son named Saul. I know that's not him. But as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. It was already recognized. There's our man. Put the sea on his jersey. He's our team captain. He is a good-looking dude. Later, when they're searching for a new king because, well, Saul didn't, plan out as well as they had hoped we read in first samuel 16 7 samuel comes to a family he starts going through the sons he assumes the oldest and god tells him right away he says samuel the lord said do not consider his appearance or his height for i have rejected them the lord does not look at the things that people look at people look at the outward appearance but the lord he looks deeper he looks at the heart But we haven't stopped as a society and as a culture. We continue to formulate teams, those that we deem worthy to sit in our bench. We rely rely on some of their traits and their abilities and what we deem as essential for being important. And we gather ourselves around these people. And then we size up the opposition and we begin to calculate the percentage of success. And we do it. Remember the ten spies? God says, Hey, go check out the promised land I give you. We read in Numbers 1333. We saw the Nephilim. They were descendants. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. <laughs> I going. We do it. Israel walked out onto the playing field, and the opposition began to what? They laughed. Look how small they are. And it was in this. And when this constantly happens to us in society, we fall into a trap, as even the Philistines did. A trap that has paralyzed humanity from the get-go. A trap that stems from our perceived perceptions of what we deem as valuable or of worth or of success. And this can be summed up, I think, in one word. Pride. Pride. That somehow we are in control based on what i have or what i put my effort into it that that life's outcome especially if we're going to have any positive ones would be kind of solely based on my performance and my abilities or my appearance that it would be on my strength that i would continue and do well and that happens to us all the time if i'm going to have victory well then i got to put the work into it and so there's a conversation that always develops. It happened between Goliath and the Philistines and David. We read in 1 Samuel seventeen ten. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the army of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. On hearing the words. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I read that and going, well. I'm sure the words are pretty powerful when they start chanting and glide, but I'm thinking physicality had a little more to do here than intellect, and it wasn't the words. It was the fact that Goliath was standing that much taller than all of them, and they were freaked out. It was the grasshopper syndrome again. They're looking at all this comparative stuff, and they're going, we're hooped. They forgot who was behind them. God, no, we're hooped. Look at the size of these guys. And so again, as demonstrated, you're going to see this constantly throughout Scripture, even in a sense how Jesus came as a baby. You see this theme and this pattern begin to develop. God brings a teachable moment to Israel right then and there, once again. And what happens is they said it goes counter to what we think are ideal and our thoughts are and our fears. God says, no, I'm going to do something different. And again, he's going back to what he had Samuel say. Don't don't look at the outward." look deeper and so along comes a boy not even a man of small stature incredible faith he shows up on the bench this is what i'd call the tsn turning point of the game for israel with the opposition the momentum begins to change and we have david this boy coming up and we read in verse 1732 david said to saul let no one lose heart on account of the philistine your servant hey i'll go fight him i'll do it And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, what is a Philistine compared to that? And so during the match, this unintimidating, insignificant shepherd boy reveals something that God says is free to all of us, strength and courage and power. And so he proclaims, you come against me with with a spear and a sword and a javelin, you know, and height, let's not forget height. You come with what everyone thinks is so valuable. I bet you the sword weighed more than David. But he says, but I, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. And so people throughout all of history, we we resonate with this story. Why? We love the underdog story, don't we? Ah, the little guy came through. A lot of times I watch sports and I vote for the team that's supposed to lose. I just love the underdog story. But I was looking at this and I'm going, I've fallen into the same trap as all of Israel has done forever and ever. That somehow when we encounter obstacles in life, when we uh, encounter terrors or these obvious huge size issues that we seem like grasshoppers, that somehow we feel like we're the underdog. But David said, no, it's, it's actually the opposite. See, we scope out our bench, and we continue the comparison game, and this insecurity comes in, but every once in a while, a David or a a Mother Teresa or a Billy Graham or a Daniel or countless others come along, and they they say something else. We're not the underdog. We're not the ones that are going to... God is on our bench. These people weren't big or they're impressive, but they knew something, and that's why the pre cheer before the game for David was simply But I come against you, not on my own, but in the name of the Lord Almighty. He's on my bench. And that's all you need to know, and that's all I need to know. So that, where this all came from is I was doing my devotions one morning and 1 Peter 5.5 5 started me down this road of thinking of the benches that we constantly do in sports and the opposition and this us versus them. And, that, and I realized in reading this, it says, yeah, you are on a team. There is a team. And oh, by the way, it's not a conspiracy theory. There is something going on in this world that is beyond you. There is an opposition, and it's not just you, and it's not just the other people. There's something deeper, darker, and much more terrifying that is on the opposite bench. And so Peter says, here's what you need to know in light of this opposition and your team. So we read in 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves. That's put on your jersey, okay? Put on your jersey. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers, not just here, but throughout the world is undergoing all kinds of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffered a little while will himself restore you, make you strong, make you firm, make you steadfast, and to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And the key line that caught me right off the hop as I was reading this, it says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And I, I, immediately the thought came to me, boy, opposes. In other words, the opposition. In other words, if you want to be in opposition to God, here's the secret. Be prideful. Fall into this trap that somehow you're in control. That everything is dependent upon you. Even, and I hate to say this, and this is off topic, it's not in the notes, there's no slide, but I was even told how God can't even work without my faith. That God's limited. And I was going, what? Okay, I understand faith. What's and in the religious circle, suddenly it was more important about the faith than even God. That God can't do it. It's up to you, Glenn. And if you have the faith, then God can work. Somehow we took power even in this area And I'm looking at this, and it caught my attention. God opposes pride. And let me tell you why. Psalms 10.4, I think, sums it up. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, guess what? There's no room for God. There's no room for God on the bench. Because we don't even want to think about it. In 2 Kings 19.22, there's a whole bunch of foreign kingdoms coming to Israel. And they're thinking, oh, they're coming to take them down. But it was about God too. And so we read in that verse, who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom do you think you have raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? It's not just Israel. It's against the Holy One of Israel. You don't realize who you're taking on. And the biggest mistake we can ever make is thinking that somehow life is about you and me. It really is, and we all fall into that. Pride deceives us, friends. It minimizes God. It takes Him out of the game. Who is it that you have ridiculed, that verse says. I'll tell you who it is. When somehow, when we think it's up to us, it's the creator. It's the holy one. Highly majestic, almighty God, it's our sustainer, our savior, our king, our lord of lords, our king of kings, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And pride, and that's why God hates it so much, and pride is so powerful that it causes us to go blind to his very presence. And his existence in this world. Pride minimizes his reality. Pride puts us before God. Pride creates false assumptions of success and worth and value. Pride says that somehow I have to be in control of everything that happens to me. And that we are the key to success. And the greatest detriment in this whole process, which scripture refers to is all the time, is that we lose the fear of the Lord. They no longer have the fear of the Lord within them. Proverbs 9.10 says it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, friends. And so pride comes in, and here's the bottom line. We become stupid. We just go dumb when pride kicks in. It was said humility isn't simply saying, I'm, I'm, I'm nobody. Who am I? I'm nobody. No, humility is starting to say, hmm, I'm starting to understand God as somebody. God is somebody. So why is this important? Why the fear of the Lord? Well, Proverbs nineteen twenty three again, sums it up. Those who fear the Lord will fear nothing else. Did you hear that? Like, let that sink in. I, I, I tear up. Because I'm going, wow, that's faith. That's David faith. Going, I come in the name of the mighty Lord. Everything stacked up against me. And I may even die, but I come in the name of the Lord. Proverbs 8.13 says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Can you imagine if we as a society, as a humanity, grasped what this meant? Can you imagine relationships in this context of such hatred toward sin? Fights, almost impossible. Why? Because we'd be too busy listening and asking for forgiveness from each other for our own selfishness in everything that happens. I'd be preoccupied with my sin in all of this, not yours. Clicks in schoolyards? No, kids would be telling good stories about each other. Not gossip. When someone sins against us, hurts us, slanders us, we would still have room in our heart for forgiveness, not revenge, not somehow to retaliate. We would cover our teammates in love and in forgiveness and in humility. How did Peter say it? All of you clothe yourselves with what? Humility toward one another. Why? Because God hates. He opposes pride. And shows favor to the humble. Humility. What do you think was behind the words of Jesus when that lawyer came to him and says, hey, tell me, sum it all up. What's the, what's the greatest commandment? He says, well, love God with everything you got. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we say that all the time, but pff, try living that up. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment, Jesus said, greater than this. None. You can go in no way in any error, by doing and following these two things. Love God with all you got and love people. Pride overtakes humility. Pride makes us hard. Pride allows us to become self-absorbed with ourselves. You know that saying pride comes before the fall? Well, that's scripture. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit <laughs> before a fall. And then there's Isaiah, Isaiah 2.17. The arrogance of man will be brought low, and human pride humbled, because the Lord alone will be exalted in this day. See, that's what it's about. It's not about us. And so that's why God hates pride. Why? It keeps us from Him and others. It keeps us living in a state of anxiety and concern and fear. It keeps us from realizing that God is on our team, on our bench, that God is not the opposition. And oh, by the way, people are not the opposition. We're going to see there is another enemy. We shouldn't be out just fighting each other. That's what He wants us to do, the enemy. And so we know when Isaiah was brought to the throne room of God, and we know that it says, "Seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple." And Isaiah is brought into the context of God in Isaiah six one to two, and he's looking at all this, and all he can do in the, in this presence of such purity and holy is go, "Woe to me! Whoa, I'm toast." If there's a penalty box, I'm headed for it. Never mind. He's probably going to pull me out of the game. This this purity, this holiness is piercing through me, and it sees every darkness that has ever resided in me. And then, in an act in Isaiah that points to Jesus as clearly as anything we are told about in the Bible, okay, we see this image take place. I want to read it to you. The gospel message. Can you imagine this? When John wrote his letter in 1 John, he must have been thinking of this when he wrote in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, he will cleanse us, he will purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what we're dealing with the Lord's table today. That's what happens when we understand the fear of the Lord. In that moment, as Isaiah realizes what just happened with the seraphim, what just cleansed him, in this act of complete freedom, suddenly the terror begins to shift to awe and reverence and wonderment, and Isaiah does what anyone would do in that situation. He said, put me in the game. Oh my goodness, put me in the game, God. Verse 8 says that I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Send me. What you have? How can I not go? I'm going to honor you, God. I'm going to honor you with obedience. I'm going to serve you with all that I have. The fear of the Lord is going to change from woe to me to wow to God. The fear of the Lord puts us in a place where we start thinking less about ourselves. And then our heart is filled with the awesomeness and the greatness of God. And in this process, there is less room for us to question, well, what are people going to say about me? Soon we don't even care about that. Edward Welch writes in his book, when people are big and God is small, he says, such awe attracts you to God. It does not repel or leave you feeling shame. It makes you want to come to Him and know Him. And when the fear of the Lord matures in you, Christ becomes irresistible. Pride or humility? God in the opposite bench or in our bench. And that's why Jesus invites us come close. To know him is the glorious one that he is, and that's why people write like Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: "Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord kept safe." And so I ask myself, well, "Who are you controlled by, Glenn?" It was in my very first year of Bible college. I have the Bible that the teacher gave to me, the prophet that changed my life with regards to God. Changed, but he used this man to direct me to even the potential and the possibility of ministry because I pulled myself out of the game long before and I said it in my testimony. I went through all my years of Bible calls saying, this is great. It's not flooring. I'm playing hockey. It's wonderful, but that was it. And then this verse came. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And yes, so we have a reason for shame in this world and terror. It's called sin. And from the very moment Adam and Eve chose to go against God, the hiding began. The nakedness was revealed and the shame was highlighted. But the whole message of scriptures, we don't have to remain in that. And the gospel, what Isaiah saw, and happened in that image in heaven. And the whole story of Jesus Christ is the story of God saying, I'm coming to cover the nakedness of the opposition, you and me. I'm coming to glorify you. I'm coming to dress you in such incredible, glorious attire. And that I'm going to bring you to this wedding feast in heaven. And I'm going to marry you rather than crush you. King David, a man known for his sins but also his faith, said, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. See, God's gaze on David wasn't a curse. It wasn't, I caught you now. It was a blessing. He understood God's gaze upon him as protection for now those whose guilt has been atoned by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The coal has touched our lips. Jesus has healed us, and you no longer have nothing to fear. And I know fear is natural, and I know we'll face it for the rest of our lives, but we will have entire opportunities now to take that fear and put it in the right perspective. It does not need to control us, especially when we come to the fear of man and what others are going to think. I have battled that my whole life. We cannot forget who leads on our bench. Psalmist said, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of who will I be afraid? Of whom shall I fear? You see, whenever people become so large in our eyes, even pastors, when they become so large in our eyes, God becomes diminished. He just does. You can't worship both God and man. But from the moment as toddlers, as I said earlier, we we start this journey of comparative living. We get on this roller coaster of us versus them and competition, and in doing so, we begin this journey that leads to the idolization of those that we deem by mankind as successful, how we define success. And so people suddenly around us, they begin to grow in idolatrous proportions. And so we have professional athletes that are, you know, and entertainers and business tycoons and the rich and the famous and and the likes and the following. And we have all of this stuff where we just in awe of all these people around us. Look who's on my bench. I want that guy. I've always been frustrated with the, the wealth of wisdom that we give these entertainers because they make good movies and suddenly their words turn to gold. Yeah, I'm just going, unbelievable. And even when it comes to self-improvement, maybe a little less self-improvement, I'm not saying get better, but how about a little more worship of God? How about a little more glory bringing to one who deserves it? Isaiah 33, 6, He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. I said it in my last message, I'll reiterate it again. The fear of the Lord is this spectrum of attitudes. And yes, like Isaiah, it begins with, woe to me. My goodness, I am such a sinner. And there should be terror. Why? Because I'm not God and we stand before a holy God. We are unclean, we are sinners. But like Isaiah, we can move from that point. And after being cleansed through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we receive God's incredible gift of forgiveness and this right standing that we don't deserve before God. Our eyes begin to be open to things like grace and mercy and love, and fear begins to fade. Not always, but it begins. And so we move to this new spectrum, new side of the spectrum, where this fear of the Lord just becomes submission and obedience and awe and reverence and, yes... Pick me, Lord. Use me. Use me. However you can, use me. And we still acknowledge our sinfulness, and we still make a lot of stupid mistakes, and I will continue to do that throughout my life. And I will have this ability to forget and to sometimes have to be refreshed again. But we will also incredible discover this incredible tolerance and patience of God in this process. And that's why John wrote, There's No Fear in Love. And then in this discovery of God's presence and that he's on our bench, pride begins to be dismantled. Even this morning I woke up and the first thoughts entering my mind, I'm just telling you, I'm honest. It's all right. Ah, Nobody's going to be there. I'm going, what a stupid thought. Where did that come from? And I'm sitting there going, why does that? You're just finished writing a sermon about what does the matter what people think and that's the first thing you think this morning? Who's going to be there to what? Applaud you? You are such a... I won't say it. And that's why Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, we have an opposition. The devil prowls around. He's looking for any moment to pounce on you, to take advantage of any stupid thoughts you have. Resist him. See, there are prominent adversaries. Devil's one of them, but flesh, the world, they're all there, and they all whisper to you that you need to take control, that we need to fear God in terror all our lives, of judgment only. Even that sometimes we minimize sin. We say, well, you know, I'm not a killer. That's not so bad. And Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. And yes, I may not have killed anyone, but the more we think of ourselves as just so good and mighty and talented, well, the more God becomes irrelevant. So understand that there is an enemy, and self is part of that, and Satan And so the promise proclaims, you know, when you read Psalms, it talks about his love endures forever, but then it talks about, boy, who can stand before an angry God. It's all there. And we need to live in the realization that sin does more than simply sadden God. It offends God. And so it's a balance. And Edward Welch writes again, if we look only at God's love, we will not need him. And there will be no urgency in the message of the cross. If we focus narrowly on God's justice, we will want to avoid Him. And we will live, live in terror, fear, always feeling guilty and waiting for punishment. And that's why Scripture just so often says, you know me. You still know me. Because in that knowing, and as we glorify God, glory is just to bring weight. <laughs> the weight of what it deserves. And so we bring the weight of God's worth before us. And we go, God, you're worthy of everything. My life is insignificant, but you've chosen to seek me and pursue me. And that's mind-blowing. And so his glory, though, as you learn and grow, is our freedom. His glory is our victory. His glory is our hope. And And if we minimize that and we're consumed with our glory and we're consumed with all the fears that reside in our hearts and our concerns only, then God's glory and the weight of his place is dropped. And so I close with what Peter said at the end. And the God of all grace, he already forgave me for my stupidity this morning. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, while himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He himself will do this. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for all that you offer. Your mercy, your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your very presence. The fact that you created this place and you put us in it. And Lord, in this process, it gets a little confusing. Especially if we're dealing with hurt and pains that we'll pray about later. And I know you want us to bring this before you. But God, we cannot be consumed and gripped by a fear that takes you out of the picture that somehow puts us as the the solution. We are so far from that. May we understand and firmly grasp all that you have given us and promised us, and in all of these things, we want to bring you all the weight that we can give, all the glory and the honor that you deserve, and then stand with such confidence and faith as Isaiah did and say, (laughs) yeah, woe to me, but God pick me, send me. Let me be in the game. Let me change this world one person at a time, starting with me. Let me be about your kingdom, your growth, your mercy, your grace, and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.